Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some beautiful cases that fit both form and function. And you can choose your case design, fabric and trim color, add custom engraving, and more. And of course, you can find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Murine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at picketblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram. And you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of obsession. There is something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of the HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD, and you can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I hope you are, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts to leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet, I was blown away by both the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There is a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is that the one and only Doc Severinsen helped to design the Eastman Beginner trumpet model. I still play that B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal. You can find out more at eastmanwins.com. I'd love it if you'd visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And while you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, you can do that at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is a bit ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The same goes for the new Destino designed by Doc. This horn sizzles when I need it to sizzle and is as smooth as silk when I wear my sil- uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, the line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. Here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support the show for as little as $36 a year. That's only $3 a month. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. You can join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on with the interview. I'm going to do a formal welcome, right? Which, okay. You know, and it's really funny. I keep thinking about this as our interview's coming up. It's like, so much has changed since <laughs> I first started. 
all of this. Uh -huh. So in fact, you know, I don't think I did a, hey, Conrad Jones, welcome to my podcast, <laughs> you know, um, and here we are again. Uh, you were my first interview, very first interview. I, had you known that, you may have, you may have said no, right? Like, what the hell is this guy going to do? Uh, 120 interviews later, here we are. And uh, it's been a blast along the way. But, you know, I look back at those first interviews, and first of all, I was so grateful that everybody had given me the time and the opportunity to do this. So, um, well... August, I think, I'm trying to remember the exact date, August of 2018 is when we sat down for the first mm -hmm. time to talk. A little bit has changed in that amount of time. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's an understatement of understatements. Um, you've certainly uh, solidified yourself in, in the Indianapolis music scene and as principal trumpet of the ISO. And then 2020 hits and it's like, what the heck, right? I mean, it disrupts everything. So, you know, I'd like to, to try to catch up on what's happened in the last couple of years. Uh, maybe focus a little bit on the, the pandemic, but more about like what's come out of the pandemic. Like you mentioned this duo with Riley. And uh, so uh, let's start, actually let's start there. You know, since the ISO is shut down for the foreseeable future, You've engaged in a little chamber music. I shouldn't say little. You've engaged in a chamber music endeavor with Riley. I forget his last name. Uh, Jim Paolo. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the, the duo that we have, we, we sort of unofficially started it actually in spring of 2017, but it sort of was the kind of thing that uh, began as just a fundraiser for one of the ISO volunteer organizations. And then we were like, oh, this is actually really fun to do. And we have similar tastes in music and styles and things like that. And it was like, oh, maybe this is, maybe there's something here. We can do education stuff, perform recitals. And we ended up doing a few more of these uh, fundraiser type things and kind of would just plug them into our schedule, you know, as we could. Um, thinking maybe someday down the road, we could really invest some serious time in this. And then of course, like you mentioned, March, 2020 hits. And um, I, I don't think immediately I was like, oh, sweet global pandemic. Now's the perfect time to, you know, <laughs> dig, dig into the two gobbagools brass duo. But I think once the initial, um, shockwave and depression and weird motivational ups and downs and all the challenges that I think many people in some way or another went through in that like March, April, May kind of moment, we were sort of thinking like, you know, this could be a really great thing and, and time for us to invest in this group. Because at the very least, since there's no real repertoire for trumpet and bass trombone specifically anyways, this is a really good, um, moment in time to invest in arranging and all that sort of grunt work to allow us to hopefully someday either plug this back into our schedule naturally when the ISO is kind of up and running or just have a lot of material to work from in the you know next 5, 10, 15 years, whatever uh, we want to do. So that was sort of one of the first things that kind of popped up and kicked into high gear pretty early on um, in this pandemic. But it sounds um, like the, the beginnings of that were, were pre pandemic they they were yeah i mean we kind of had it cooking for a little while and then it sort of went into high gear once the pandemic hit and then 
the stuff that was sort of brand new um, as of, you know, the pandemic 2020 was everything that was a little bit more community based and like for larger ensembles. So um, although the Gabagool thing, we didn't really like kick into full steam until closer to June, it did occur to me very, very early on uh, once this whole thing hit, like, oh man, everybody's going to be struggling in one way or the other. But as much as, you know, musicians or artists or people like that might be struggling, I mean, the community at large and the people that might already be in sort of a tough spot, uh, whether it's homelessness or something else like that, are really going to be suffering during this time. So I kind of tried to divert a lot of energy to finding ways to get musicians engaged to sort of support that portion of the community kind of first, just because I think that was also a way for me to help stay sane and and healthy or as healthy as you can stay when like everything's hitting the fan you know so i'm sure you can relate in some some way to how that felt yeah uh, early on with the uncertainty and everything so you know we started doing like a brass band thing with you know people that are usually known to be you know classical players but as you know from all the time you spent with the symphony and stuff there's quite a few really versatile musicians in our <laughs> ranks um so we were really able to do a lot of stuff, everything from brass quintets to like New Orleans style brass bands and, you know, tried to find ways to raise money for, for people in town and just give also live concerts. Because I think in some weird way, live music can be a, a positive thing, even beyond its usual call in a moment like this. So I, I, I want to come back to that. But before I forget, Gabagool. Oh yeah. So, you got to spell it out so I can truly understand what, and, and then explain the name where that came from. So uh, the, yeah, the spelling G A B A G O O L. And basically it's, it's slang for Capicola ham. So it's basically like a, a East coast Italian <laughs> slang for deli meat. But what's, what's funny about this is, you know, Riley and I sort of we're trying to come up with like you know just a reasonable professional sounding name for our group because we were starting to do some more recitals outside of just indianapolis and we're like we should probably have some title for us so we were like like mucking around with like the indie duo or like something that was like kind of cheap like not cheesy but just like professional sounding right and with nothing was really sticking to the wall and so in the meantime we were just jokingly calling ourselves oh we're just a bunch of knuckleheads like just two gob cool just trying to figure out our thing and so we would kind of refer to ourselves, like our group, as that, mostly because like we love the Sopranos. We're both uh, heavily Italian, and also we love The Office too. And there's this hilarious episode where Michael Scott has this whole run-in at like the equivalent of an Olive Garden, trying to order gabagool, like in the you know. And so we—that's sort of how this name came to be. And then honestly, it just sort of stuck, like accidentally. It was just we ended up having to use a name for stuff, and everything else felt like not genuine uh and we just rolled we're like all right well the two gabagools it is and so here we are <laughs> that's awesome and it you know interesting to to know the genesis of a name like that and you know you kind of wonder like smashing pumpkins or nine inch nails or you know bands yeah. like that it's like where in the world you know did they come up with that so uh okay so um thanks for the detour on that Let, let's go back though you mentioned uh you know performing live and uh, Owensboro Symphony, a group that I'm part of, we actually did our first thing of the season last weekend. Oh, nice. And it was, uh, we videotaped a, our brass quintet videotaped a five minute Christmas segment that's going to air in December. Uh -huh. And then the next day, uh, there were like six chamber groups out on a 
a long Broadway. So there was a stroll and the groups were spaced apart, but the community could come out, it was a free event. It was packed. And as much fun as the audience had, I think we all had, the musicians had just as much, if not more enjoyment that we were actually together again, even if it wasn't as a full symphony, you know, that, that, that proximity, right? Not just on the computer screen again, but actually sitting socially distanced from each other, you know, but still able to make music. And what a great feeling that was. You know, so when you talk about that, I think, you know, we're all hungry for that live experience, the patrons and the musicians. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. totally. So, um, okay, so now I'm, I'm my, my interest in gabagools is, is, is it two gabagools or just gabagools? Uh, we just go as the two gabagools. The two gabagools. So, you yeah. said you guys had like interest in music. What is that? Is that uh, classical or rock or what is it? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of a little bit of everything. And I know that's sort of a, a, a broad answer, but, you know, Riley Talk and out. I both, yeah, we, I mean, we, <laughs> we both grew up listening to and actually playing like a lot of rock music and pop music and jazz. And that overlaps sort of with our, our more traditional classical background. And it's sort of, you know, it's sort of rare to run into people, you know, especially that are like within your own symphony orchestra that have both an interest in that music, but also like a feel for that music and the ability to like really play that kind of stuff with a, a convincing style and like sort of authenticity. And so, you know, I mean, his, his dad is a professional, um, you know, like the, the piano bar singer kind of people at like Howl yeah. the Moon and things like that. So yeah, so he grew up playing guitar with his dad and doing like top 40 tunes and all that kind of stuff. And then I grew up as, you know, more of a jazz player anyways in the first place. And all this sort of love of all styles of music has kind of overlapped, which is why we ended up doing everything from like Simon and Garfunkel and Beatles tunes to, you know, Latin music and a little bit of jazz here and there and some classical stuff. And we've been trying to arrange, you know, a little bit, more um specific just to us since this is a you know kind of a unique opportunity to say okay we're going to arrange music knowing who's exactly playing it on the other end so we'll listen to you know a piano piece and try to curate it for our particular abilities or in often my case lack of abilities you know trying to just come up <laughs> with ways to play stuff on a trumpet and perform it you know i mean you know how this goes like performing a duo recital with no piano i mean that's all you're you're really engaged uh, chop wise for like <laughs> yeah, right? a full hour plus so coming up with creative ways to make sure my chops aren't dead halfway through you know things like that uh, are all sort of part of the challenge so uh, is uh, obviously it works you've got arrangements but are you doing these arrangements yourself or have you hired somebody out um we are doing them ourselves uh there's also a friend of mine i don't know if did you ever meet hayato um, Tanaka in, in Indianapolis. He came, he's played with the ISO a couple times for some random things over the years, but uh, he's a really close friend of mine and principal trumpet in the Tucson Symphony. Oh, yes. Yeah. And so he's also kind of done some work with us um, on some arrangements here and there. And we're, yeah, we're basically sort of just learning as we go um, with this thing. I mean, I've arranged a little bit over the years, but I'm not like a consummate orchestrator or anything like that. Uh, so we're sort of just faking it till we make it in this department and just seeing what yeah. we can come up with. And, you know, some things have definitely had more success than others. And there's a handful of things that, you know, haven't made it to see the light of day outside of our living room. Kind of vibe. 
but uh you know they're uh you're probably familiar with these but hokan hardenberger and christian Lindbergh had some really fantastic uh trumpet trombone and piano arrangements yeah. that were back in the i think it was late 80s mid to late 80s yep all that like carmen and all those fun uh yeah Mozart things, um, right yeah uh, uh, la forza del destino yep. right the overture to that which uh blake and i are going to try to do on a u indie recital oh uh, if, nice. if it happens so um but you know okay so trumpet and tenor trombone i can see that because i've heard that but it's like yeah. trumpet and bass trombone you might as well get a chainsaw to partner with, right? Because it's like, well, I, you know, I'm not comparing him to a chainsaw, but I'm just thinking, okay, now you're a, another octave apart. It just So I know the challenges are there. You, you're obviously overcoming and meeting those challenges. Yeah, we've got tons of stuff, um, mostly because actually in June, during this sort of quarantine situation, the ISO, instead of Symphony on the Prairie, started this radio show, Symphony on the Patio, and the two Gabagools were actually the first of uh. these nine radio shows. And so basically we were tasked with coming up with like 45 minutes of recorded music in like three days. And so Riley and I were like, yikes, we better just get recording. So we <laughs> re recorded this radio show in my living room and uh, we ended up doing a ton of different things. And uh, it was definitely cut it, cutting it close to the wire, but because of this, we have like a handful of recent things sort of on hand. Nice. Um, but, you know, I think, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for, I guess, myself, and I don't want to embarrass him too much, but the, in my opinion, the reason why this has more of a chance to work than you would maybe otherwise assume with a bass trombone is, is luckily because not only is Riley's normal style a little bit less chainsaw-y than the, the stereo. Well, yeah, and forgive me for using that. No, no, <laughs> I, 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 I know what you mean, but, you know, yeah. he, he's really kind of a freak of nature on his instrument, so the fact that he can sort of play so low and also so high with such facility, it actually gives us a tremendous amount of range um, of just like style and color and different things like that. And it's right. like kind of horrifying some of the stuff that like I'll write and I'll be like, oh, this probably won't work because who can play this? And then we'll play it. And then of course I'm the one struggling and he's like, oh yeah, this feels <laughs> great. You know? Um, so I, I think we're lucky in the fact that he's just so good. So that gives us a, a chance, um, yeah. you know, to, to hang in there and sort of try some stuff that otherwise might not be possible. Um, and flugelhorn blends pretty well too, I'd imagine. It does, yeah. And we've, we've done quite a bit of flugel and trumpet stuff. Uh, one of our more recent ones was we did Leonard Bernstein's Simple Song from his oh. mass for bass trombone and flugelhorn and um, stuff like that it's it was sort of that 50 50 like is this gonna actually work and then you know i think as much as it can on two non-choral instruments it sort of kind of holds up you know um and again just because he can literally play like piano parts somehow on his trombone it's it's mm -hmm. kind of crazy so it just popped into my head do either of you use multiphonics you know we we don't but that's probably something that's worth exploring i mean to say the least i mean when you that, said non-chordal oh, yeah. it made me think you know that's in, in because of people like rex richardson now yeah. some composers and arrangers think that everybody can do this right so you know they <laughs> it, maybe they don't include it in everything thank goodness but um yeah uh, it's funny uh i interviewed zach depew uh just a week or so ago oh, awesome. and didn't realize the connection between the two of you yeah. And, but hearing how Time for Three got their start, 
um, really that kind of that big break in Philadelphia, the night the lights went out, that story that he told, it's like, you know, you got to have your stuff ready. Right. And, and then, but they only had two members of, of the group. I think Nick was off at another festival. So it was, mm -hmm. it was him and Renan that, that had to play the time for three <laughs> program that night. So, but I'm thinking, you know, you're kind of at that same point, you've got this, you had it ready, you've got this repertoire and who knows where this is gonna, where this is gonna go. I mean, this, I, I can't wait to hear some of these arrangements. I think it's gonna be fantastic. Um, but, uh, okay, so let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit. Um, what's it like to practice when your main gig, you know, is, it, it doesn't exist for the moment? What, what are you doing, and besides this group, uh, what are you doing to, to maintain that orchestral focus? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. And I'm not even sure I still know the answer to that. But I, I feel like when I look back on the last handful of months, like since March, it's really been a way up and down type uh, trajectory in this particular department. I mean, at, at first, um, I think I was just kind of trying to figure out, okay, well, it seems like we might be playing soon or we might need to record stuff. I don't even know what's going on. And this is where our instrument really affects the way we get through a pandemic because I mean, we, every instrument has its struggles, but trumpet in a pandemic doesn't have the luxury of like taking five days off and then just picking it up and then recording a brass ensemble thing. Cause somebody asked you to, uh, you know, and then you just play fanfare for the common man after like seven days off. I mean, we don't, it doesn't really work the same way for us. So at, at first I was just kind of staying in shape in my usual way, sort of in a weird, like, well, this is strange, but you know, that underlying motivation of the instrument, just not letting you dip too far just because of the sheer endurance demands kind of keeps you practicing. I mean, you can also choose to take time off and choose to have enough time to get back in shape, of course. But at first, at least I was kind of maybe staying afloat because of that. And then as this thing cruised on, I was like, man, I'm going to need to like get into something new or add something to my usual because yeah, without those playing demands, you're not met 50, 50 with a schedule. You're like a hundred percent responsible for what you're engaging, you know? And so I was talking with friends and former teachers and um, my teacher, Mike Miller, who I studied with at the Cleveland Institute of Music, who has given me tons of goldmine routines over the years, including my Miller Arben one that I, uh, have been doing since 2009 we were chatting and he cooked up this Clark routine sort of just for this pandemic like you know I'm going to take a book that I sort of never really dove into the way that maybe it seems like trumpet players should and I'm going to just come up with this like six week long kind of comprehensive you know half hour thing out of the Clark book and so he passed that on to me and I ended up getting into that for a while and that's that's sort of the more trumpet technical kind of answer but um I don't know, man. I mean, I, it's the orchestra thing. I, I I'm sure I've lost my, I haven't lost my spot. It's probably in there somewhere, but <laughs> I, I think unless you're really doing that and filling up a room like that and covering that wide range of volume, I mean, you can recreate it as much as you want at home, but it's still never going to be fully the same. So I'm definitely like been staying in shape through, you know, quintet size things or duo stuff. Like it's, I mean, I'm still like playing a ton, 
but I'm sure whenever the first week back in an orchestra playing something big is, it's going to be like kind of riding a bike, but you're really struggling to pedal, you know, for, <laughs> for a little while. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sure we can all relate to that in, in a way, but it's, I mean, especially early on, it was, it was really nuts. I mean, some weeks I would just, you'd have a day where you just literally don't feel like getting up off the couch. And then other days you try to be motivated, but then there's this weird energy in the room because the whole world is like crumble. I mean, it was, it was really weird, you know, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I'm just trying I, to claw I, my way. I, I felt so bad for you and the ISO as, as an entire group, but the week that things shut down was Mahler five. I mean, you, did I understand it right? You at least got a rehearsal or two in. Yeah, we did a, we did a couple rehearsals. Um, and then right after the dress rehearsal, I think maybe I forget what it was, whatever it was, it was like right before the first concert, uh, everything shut down. And I remember we got the memo about this maybe Thursday night before the Friday show. So I, I and my mom was actually in town she she had flown in like before we knew any of this was going on. Yeah. She was going to check out Mahler 5. And then, you know, everything like really hits the fan. And she's like, wow, I got to get back to New York, you know, safely somehow. And right. so Thursday night we got the memo. And so we just decided to do a fat Italian blowout. So we like made fresh pasta, drinking wine, <laughs> eating cheese, all this stuff. Then I wake up Friday morning and the symphony's like, hey, can you just come to the hall by yourself? It's empty. Can you just like record the opening of Mahler 5? and maybe some other excerpts and just like give a little, you know, we're sorry the concerts are canceled type thing. And I remember waking up in the morning after eating all that salt oh, no. and ham and salami <laughs> all that stuff like, all right, I guess I do have to dust this off and, and uh, squirt, squirt it out anyway, at least under some kind of uh, pressure. But yeah, it was wild. Just everything just boom, just like that toast, you know. Was that your first uh, Mahler 5? Would that have been your first one? Um, it would have been my second Mueller five as principal. And then I oh, okay. played it a handful of times. I played third trumpet, I think maybe three or four times and then yeah. fourth once and second one, you know, but uh, it, it, yeah, it was going to be my first Mueller five playing principal since January 2014 or 15, something like that. And you were feeling pretty good about it too, um, I'd imagine. Yeah. I mean, you know, you kind of, do it, do the best you can to kind of get into that zone, but for sure, I definitely had been really ramping up. I mean, any any week like Mahler 5 or Pictures or Zarathustra or anything where there's like Petrushka, anything, even if you feel good about your your fundamentals or your approach to the piece, any big trumpety thing always has that little extra adrenaline in the room, whether, I mean, that's like an right. undeniable just fact of the job. And so right. any week like that, even if it's something like pictures that I last season, if everything wasn't canceled, it would have been a weird year where I would have played pictures four times, but every single time, even on a season like that, there's still that extra bump that you have to be prepared to just stay, stay calm, cool and collected like right. under. And so I always have all these mental extra routines that I sort of boost into my um, week. So for Mahler five, I was definitely in the full throes of my normal extra sort of mental zone practice kind of stuff that I do. Um, and so that was weird to just be like super ramping up for that. And then all of a sudden like global pandemic and now you're just like chilling at home uh, kind of vibe. So, yeah. Um, how long have you been in Indy now? How many years? So this, jeez. Um, so what I'd be starting my, oh, I got, I moved to Indy August of 2016. So I guess this would have been, 
I would have been starting my fifth season this wow. fall, which is wow. kind of wild to say right? that out loud. It's kind of been flying. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Um, so Indianapolis as an art scene, uh, give me your take on, on what you see and what you feel around town outside of the pandemic. Okay. Well, you know, I guess sort of in a weird way, what the pandemic has brought about, I think actually represents a lot of how I feel about the art scene here anyways. And, and just um, seeing the sort of versatility and like willingness of musicians in Indianapolis, that's something I think I was always noticing in, in normal life. And in a weird way, I don't think was even able to tap into as much as I would have hoped just because of my day job. Um, but the pandemic has really illuminated just just how resilient and flexible and and willing and caring sort of this community is um and i know that that's a little bit of a general answer but i think you kind of know what i mean in terms of just sort of what we talked about the last time i think but it's like it really is a sort of treasure chest of great people and players in this city in a way that you might not assume on paper um and i think that's just been proven and fortified in this uh, recent climate a little bit. Um, well, and, and I'm constantly reminded of the variety of music. Like it's not just classical and jazz. I mean, the, the bluegrass, the Celtic scene, uh, you know, and probably many others that I'm, you know, I'll edit those in that I can remember. But, you know, it's just yeah. like, holy cow, you mean that style of music exists here in Indy? And not just exists, but it thrives, you yeah. know? And, uh, but you're right, it's like everybody, uh, everybody's kind of kind of stepped up. Uh, I, I don't know that I want driveway concerts to become the norm, but it is kind of cool, you know, while we're in what we're in. Um, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are, are hoping to get back to the clubs and, and the Hilbert Circle Theater type settings and do their thing. But yeah. um, so... Uh, are you teaching in the interim? Are you doing anything outside of uh, working on the duo? Yeah, um, you know, I've, I haven't really added too much uh, teaching to my plate than, than usual, um, other than there's a friend of mine in New York uh, who started a, an additional teaching job in a public school district. And because of the insanity of the challenges of, of that, especially near New York City, uh, he has a really big trumpet studio. And so I'm teaching a couple of his students just for like a month or two, just to kind of give them a little of a, a buffer. And I think, I mean, he's helping me out a little bit as well in that way. Um, but outside of that, I'm just teaching my normal, um, you know, couple high school kids. Um, and then I'll do the occasional, you know, Zoom lesson for, for a college age or somebody, you know, like that. Um, but yeah, just doing virtual stuff. Just, I mean, you know, everything's changing so constantly with, with the virus and all that stuff, you know, for, in terms of like younger students, I'm just airing on the safe side just for, for them or me, whatever, just right. doing virtual, but um, you know, and, and actually on, on the bright side, there's definitely some serious downsides to virtual teaching, especially because oftentimes with a, especially a brass instrument where you can't see anything for the most part, you know, we, we really learn a lot through sound and we lose that a lot on this Zoom type situation. However, I think that the nature of this virtual connection has actually made the, the relationships with students a little bit, um, I wanna say, I don't wanna say it's like more comfortable to be in more frequent contact, but there's something about the casualness of this. It's not like a stiff, see you at 1 p.m., you know, in my 
home studio at like on Wednesday. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more of this casual, like scheduling lessons. And, and so I'm finding I'm emailing with students and sending recordings and I'm a little bit, it's a little bit more communicative in a way that I hope is helpful. Like, Oh, Hey, check this out. I just thought of this that we talked about yesterday. And then the student will write back or text back, or they'll send a video of what is this, what you were talking about. And that, that's maybe a positive thing to come out of sort of breaking down this sort of traditional wall of a, a traditional lesson. So I'm just trying to find yeah. any way possible to keep people engaged. Cause I'm telling you, I mean, we all know how hard it is to just stay motivated to just play an instrument as right. professional musicians, <laughs> but I can't imagine being like, sapped of my high school band rehearsals or jazz band or all those things that that really help you propel at a time where I mean I didn't want to practice my trumpet when I was 15 I mean I I really didn't and I I was lucky to have good teachers and good ensembles to play in to keep me engaged until yeah. I got to that point where I was insanely committed but up until then I don't know I mean I can't imagine what I would have done yeah. so I'm trying to do my best to just be uh, be there for as cheesy as that sounds for, yeah. for my students if I can you know well you know uh, technology I mean the advancements since March have been great and of course everybody started to invest in better microphones and and setups with, with all that yeah but YouTube's been around for a long time and so even my college students who I keep trying you know years past I've sent them I say you need to go listen to this person you need to go listen to this person listen to this specific video well, this year I decided that uh, it's part of their lesson. So each week they all have the exact same artist that they have to listen to and it's part of their grade. So, you know, there was a little bit of hesitation at first, but in the last couple of weeks I've actually, and they have to turn in a written summary in their own words of what they observe. You know, it's very subjective. But in the last couple of weeks, what I've gotten from these students is, wow, you know, I, I really like, you can tell that they're starting to get into it and they're listening more uh, discerningly, yeah. you know? And so here I'm thinking, okay, this isn't, this is something good that's coming out of this, even though it's existed for, you know, for them forever, they're finally taking advantage of it. You know, it's like you and I and many others, how many trips did we make to the listening library to, to check out? records and tapes and CDs and, and whatever. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that they're, and I'm, I'm, I'm giving them a wide variety, you know, Alison Balsam, Timothy Dokshitzer, uh, Sergey, uh, Ryan Anthony, you know, trying to give them the young, the old uh, yeah. to listen to. So um, sorry, I went off on a, on a tangent no, yeah. there, but I was, I was really excited about it, you know, because they're actually doing something, you know, I think that's going to help. It's that listening, right? That's, that's yep. going to inspire them, I think, as much oh, as for sure. anything. So, yeah. well, um, man, I, I can't wait uh, for us all to get back into whatever the new norm is going to be. And uh, I'm glad to know that you're healthy and doing well. And, uh, you know, um, yeah. And thanks again for the time. You know, it's, it's, it's been a little over two years since the first time we spoke and uh, I was thinking about that first interview. I was talking about teaching and pedagogy. That's where I thought everything was going to be. And it, of course, yeah. changed course pretty quickly after that. But uh, no, I appreciate, uh, you know, bringing me up to date on, on what you're doing and how things are going. And you have a website yet? Yeah, working on it. We got a, a couple things underway right now where we're looking at um, some educational type grant 
applications and different things like this. And that's been helping kicking us into gear a little bit with some of that stuff. So we're kind of actually just this week, even now that you mention it, we have sort of that side of things starting to take shape, you know, Instagram and the website and, you know, different things like this. Um, and I think this year for sure will become sort of the year that we try to just do all the groundwork that hopefully we can then tap into. Um, Cause I think in theory, what we'd love to do is just have everything ready to roll so that we can continue this once things kind of pick back up with the orchestra or wherever, because yeah. I mean, you know how it goes. Like once, once the world is actually kind of back to normal, I mean, this has been weirdly busy, this pandemic, mostly just because of when you're self-producing concerts or whatever, you're on your email in a different way than usual. But um, yeah, once things pick back up, you know, you don't have the luxury of just arranging a bass trombone and trumpet duo yeah, right. for like <laughs> seven days straight. You know what I mean? Right. So yeah, well, right. we're kind of, yeah. Conrad, man, thanks for joining me again for this. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and I uh, look forward to seeing you on stage again sometime soon. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's great to see you again, even virtually, and happy to be back on the podcast. It's been pretty awesome to see how far it's gone since, you know, our first episode. That's great. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, great man, to great to see you. Yeah, thanks, Larry. Yeah. This is look, looking forward to checking it out when it when it comes out, and uh, I've been enjoying all the other ones in the meantime. Cool. Thanks, man. So, all right. Awesome. Well, cheers. I'll see you around sometime. Yep. Bye. See you soon.